Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is formal from Naval Academy Aerospace Engineer, now anesthesiologist, and former president of the country club that I was at, Hillwood Country Club. Dr. Travis Brennan. Doc, how are you today, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks, Ferg. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time out of your schedule to come join me and uh, to discuss all of the amazing things that you've had a chance to do and also discuss the current affairs of our country that you are you know, very, you're very smart and understanding like what's going on. You've been down, you've seen a bunch of things in your lifetime and we're, we're in a pretty unique time right now. But when, when you, first thing we want to talk about is the Navy being being uh, in the United States Navy, aerospace engineer? What was, what, were you always interested in aeronautics and flying planes and what have you, or did you pick that up while you were at the Navy? Well, I, you know, as a kid, you make models of airplanes and you, you imagine what it's like. But I, I'll be honest, I didn't think that was within uh, in reach for me. Um, but. Uh, one of the things that I had always wanted to do, and my brother as well, was go to the Naval Academy. My dad was class of 49. So we both, <clears throat> excuse me, we both, uh, that was all we ever wanted to do was go to the Naval Academy. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny how I picked aerospace engineering. Uh, my drive was so strong just to get to the Naval Academy that I had put literally zero thought into the academics. It was just something I had to do, academics. Mm-hmm. And the academy had just started a majors program, and there were 26 majors you could pick from. So one day, halfway through plebe summer, the, our company commander marched us over to build an academic building, and when we fell out, he said, yeah, you're going to go in there and register for classes. So we go into this building that uh, had a long hallway, and there were 26 majors lined up alphabetically, first one on the right aerospace engineering <laughs> I said, it looks good to me so i signed up on the spot for aerospace engineering and uh 
And so that got me more, much more interested in, in yeah. airplanes and flying. But again, it was one of those things that I thought that's just kind of out of my reach. Uh, you know, I'm just an average guy. And, um, uh, but when it just happened in the Navy at the time after Vietnam, they had let too many pilots get out and had forced a lot out. Mm. And then they realized, oh my gosh, we don't have enough pilots. So, um, uh, more than half of my class went into naval aviation. Oh, really? And they did. And uh, all the way up into the summer before my senior year, I was thinking I might want to go submarines. So I did a submarine um, tour for that summer. And it was very obvious quickly that I was not going to be a submariner <laughs> because it's like it's like living in your bedroom uh, for months at a time. Wow. And, and after three days, I was thinking, what else do you guys do? Yeah, it was just that. Uh, uh, tight of, a, of an environment so that convinced me to go into naval aviation and I had good eyes mm -hmm. which which helped so I became uh, eligible to be a pilot and uh, and then I just uh, persevered through flight school and and managed to get into jets which was my uh, my dream was to go supersonic mm -hmm. if I got into jets I wanted into, into the naval aviation and I wanted to go supersonic but I really liked helicopters. Oh, interesting. So I finished primary uh, training, and I had grades good enough to go either one. Uh, but I kept thinking, if I go helicopters, I'll never go supersonic. So I went jets. Nice. And, uh, and I did get to go supersonic a lot of times. But uh, <laughs> That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that experience. What's that Well, like? it actually was an incredible letdown. I don't know if you saw the movie The Right Stuff. <laughs> But when yeah. he goes supersonic, there's the aurora borealis and you know sparkling lights and all that stuff, and it's really nothing like that at all. The airplane I was in was it was the F4 Phantom, and the only way you could tell you were going from subsonic to supersonic if you weren't looking at the gauges was the stick got stiffer. There were increased stick forces in in uh, oh, wow. in pitch going up and down. Um, but if you looked at the gauges, the airspeed indicator and the altimeter would fluctuate, kind of spin back for, back and forth for a while until you got through supersonic. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was it. There was no no lights, no nothing. <laughs> so, it, and you're up at, you know, generally you're speaking, you're up at twenty thousand or higher feet. Yeah. And and so things move by just like in an airliner when you're flying cross country everything below you looks like it's moving pretty slow this is the same thing mm -hmm. the fastest i ever went was a little over mach 2 so twice the speed of sound and that was at forty-five thousand feet and uh and the perception was identical to any time i've been in an airliner flying somewhere uh, you know 30 something thousand feet it's mm -hmm. the same slow motion below you so interesting yeah it was it was kind of uh, disappointing to me but <laughs> i did get to do it <laughs> that is cool so when you when you think about the planes that you've flown what's the fastest plane you've ever been in well the f4 was the fastest yeah it was it was one of those airplanes that the faster it went the faster it wanted to go the way they had designed the intake and the engine um it just was uh perfectly suited to produce plenty of thrust the faster you went oh wow whereas some of the other airplanes i flew the f-18 uh that was the only other supersonic plane i flew uh, it had fixed intakes and so at about mach 1.6 or 7 
it couldn't produce enough thrust to go any faster. Oh, wow. Uh, but the F4 had intakes that could change shape, which allowed the engine to keep producing high thrust, and it just kept going. Mm -hmm. when, when I, uh, the fastest the airplane ever went in the, te in the testing phase was Mach 2.65, which is, uh, that's about, um, uh, let's see, a mile, a mile every two seconds. So that's pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, that is amazing. So when, did you, like, Top Gun, like obviously the movie became, that got my era of kids super fired up about fighter jets and joining the Navy and, and what have you. What, did you ever uh, think about going to Top Gun school or did any of that ever cross your Well, cross I, your actually, plate? I actually did get to oh, go to I, Top I, Gun. Yeah, I was, uh, the East Coast squadrons, fighter squadrons, uh, had um, uh, the opportunity to send pilots and radar intercept officers, Goose, mm -hmm. uh, to the West Coast to Top Gun at Miramar uh, in between cruises, in between deployments. And so I was selected to go in between my first deployment and my second deployment. And it was in the winter of 1978, which oh. is actually about the time they were researching the movie. And interesting, my wife uh, was the woman who introduced my wife and me had a sister who was a senior vice president for Paramount Pictures. Huh. And she was in charge of getting the movie Top Gun through all of its wickets. So, um, and I found, that's how I found out when they were researching it. And uh, it turns out we did have a beautiful blonde intelligence officer at Top Gun when I was there. <laughs> yeah, but, but she was married and, and a very nice, nice woman. Um, and it was nothing like the movie. Uh, one of the first lectures we had was there will be no competition here uh, because, you know, you get all these young fighter pilots who want to be the best of the best. And when they're fighting each other in simulation, they could do something stupid and kill mm -hmm. somebody, kill themselves or kill sure. the other guy. So they didn't want any competition. Um, uh, but it was the most uh, exciting two and a half months of my flying career. It was Every day was a, another fun thing to do. Talk to us about that a little bit, like from what you can tell. What was it like on a day-to-day -day base? How much time were you in the plane versus how much were you studying? What were you studying? Well, the what at the time, the Cold War was in full swing. So most of what we learned were Soviet airplanes, Soviet tactics. Um, and uh, even more importantly, were some of the anti-aircraft um, radar systems, because uh, more likely uh, you're more likely to get shot down by a missile than by another airplane if mm -hmm. you're, if you've got your head out of the cockpit looking. Um, so we had we learned a lot about that, and then we would fly once or twice a day. Uh, so in the airplane, not very long, because. Uh, we would spend a lot of time in afterburner, and the airplane just burned gas like crazy. Yeah. Um, if you took off in the F-4 with full afterburner and never came out of afterburner, you would have a 12-minute flight because it would burn all your gas up in 12 minutes. Wow. Yeah, it just burned gas like crazy. So uh, when we went out, uh, most of our flights were either over the desert uh, uh, east of San Diego or over the water near San Clemente Island, mm -hmm. and fortunately close, pretty close by, because once we got out there and started our engagements, we'd be in afterburner a lot, and we'd go through our fuel pretty quickly. So we'd be able to bug out and get back to Miramar 
uh, Got it. with enough fuel to be safe. So what an honor that was, that man! I did not know that you were in Top Gun. That <laughs> oh, awesome. it was it was the greatest thing, and and the idea was I I would learn everything they taught me at Top Gun, and then come back to my squadron, and then teach all my squadron mates what I had learned mm-hmm. at Top Gun. So it was a really ingenious system, and. Uh, um, it was very helpful. I, I was fortunate that I never got shot at. I was in between Vietnam and the Middle East. Yeah. And um, so everything we did was simulated. But the uh, the things that we learned how to uh, about how to fly against Soviet-type airplanes um, was invaluable. You know, we... Uh, we're the best trained. And they, the, the U.S. pilots are the best trained next to the Israelis. Um, and so we generally have a, a, a much more than a one-up on other uh, other pilots out there that we sure. might go up against, especially the Middle Eastern pilots. They're, mm-hmm. they're not very well trained. So uh, we we Top Gun really changed changed how the Navy performed. Awesome. Yeah. Wow, I, that's what a treat! I did not know that. This is such a this makes my day right there. <laughs> that's really cool. So, what, so no tours of like no no like combat flights. No, no. Um, we would go on cruise. We mm-hmm. called it cruise, but it was a deployment. It would be a six generally about a six month deployment. And at the time, the East Coast squadrons were assigned to the Mediterranean. We yeah. usually had two aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean at any given time. One in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, for any Soviet threat over there, and one in the Western Mediterranean um, if there were if Libya or somebody acted up. Yeah. And um, so we basically never were in any combat situations. The closest we ever came was we were operating uh, just north of Libya, and at the time, Gaddafi was the uh, dictator, and he told the world that the Gulf of Sidra was all Libyan waters. Well, the Gulf of Sidra is basically a line about a thousand miles long drawn between two points of Libya, and uh, I forget maybe 150 miles of, from the coast, mm-hmm. which is way outside the 12 mile recognized 12-mile international limits. So we would operate down in the Gulf of Sidra just to thumb our noses at Gaddafi. And uh, and also we're out of shipping lanes, so we could do stuff, fire guns and missiles and, and not hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we were operating down there uh, on my second cruise, and one of the S3 pilots who was, they were anti-submarine pi- uh, pilots. They were, they had their heads in the cockpit looking at their little buoys that they used to look for submarines. And they flew right into right over Libya. They went right through the 12 mile limit. And the next thing you know, they're looking at desert. <laughs> oh no! So they turn around real fast, but not before a couple MiG uh, 23s joined on them, and they escorted them out. Tried to get them to come back and land in Libya, but they wisely didn't. Yeah. And so for the next two days, we were on alert because we didn't know what Gaddafi would do. Uh, so that was a little tense, but he never did anything. Yeah. But it was just it was just two years later when he did do something, and we shot down those two uh, SU-22s. Mm-hmm. Same scenario. He sent them out uh, against the carrier and and fired a missile at one of our F-14s, and that was uh, that was the end of that for him. So. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Interesting. So where so you get out of the the Navy and you become you go into med school. And become an anesthesiologist. Talk to us about the the path from exiting Navy, exiting the Navy, and heading into your profession after coming out. Well, it was um, 
it, it, I kind of hemmed a little bit. I hedged my bets. I I was a bachelor, and I coming out of the academy, aerospace engineering was a tough major, and I didn't really have great grades. I had good grades, but nothing compared to what the average med student has. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't wasn't convinced I was going to be able to get into med school, and I was about ready to go back to sea duty. And uh, so my hedge was, well, if I don't get into med school, I'll just stay in and make the Navy a career. Uh, but I surprised myself and got into med school at UT Memphis. And, uh, and so uh, that was that I had committed in my mind if I got in, I was going mainly because I wanted to have a family mm-hmm. at some point and a career tactical jet, jet pilots in the Navy. Uh, they might have a family, but most of the time they're gone. So it's, yeah. it's not much of a family life. So I figured I'm going to go to med school and, and have a chance at having a normal family life, which I end up having. Mm-hmm. And um, so I get out of the Navy in August. I still had, I was still officially in. I had what they call terminal leave available, mm-hmm. two months of terminal leave. So um, I was able to start med school when I was still officially still in the Navy. And I show up in Memphis, and I only knew one person uh, in Memphis, and that was a guy who had given me a tour of apartments when I was trying to find a place to live. Mm-hmm. And he was a former Navy pilot. Oh, wow. So uh, I knew one guy and uh, showed up. Uh, and I'll have to say that was probably the most stressful year of my life because of the the intensity of studying mm-hmm. for, with the med school curriculum but also really having no support system. Uh, fortunately, my family lives here in Nashville, so mm-hmm. it's not that far away. But it was a, uh, it was a uh, pretty good struggle to have the discipline to stick with what I was doing and, and you know, stay committed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but gradually through gaining friends through my class, uh, even though they were a lot younger than I was, they were all about eight years younger. Yeah. Um, uh, I became, uh, I got such a good support system that I got through it okay. Interesting. Well, that's great. One of the, you have the opportunity to be somewhat involved in a lot of the, as a, as an employee and an overseer of one of the more, you know, things that are being decayed, which is it almost seems like in some ways the healthcare world has shifted from, patient first to financial gain first or the the making sure that we're running this organization based around the finances versus taking care of the 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 sick or the people that mm-hmm. in need where where do you feel like the the country really is in the medical scenario as it pertains to general care and what do you think we need to do differently to make things better going forward well, as far as the care for the patients, um, the the great equalizer is the caregiver, him or herself. Um, once that interaction happens with the patient, the vast, vast majority of, of the caregivers uh, want that patient to be better. Mm-hmm. And and the financial side of it is, is way secondary. Uh, so fortunately, we have that... Um, that parachute for, sure. our, for our patients. And going back to when I first started practicing, we had a very good system um, for taking care of the indigent. Basically, we took care of them for free. Yeah. And we knew we took care of them for free, and we just wrote it off as, uh, 
uh, call it a business expense. Uh, and they got the exact same care as somebody who had good insurance or Medicare, whatever. <clears throat> the um, situation evolved with Obamacare um, where more and more of that patient care was uh, paying for it was taken care of by the government. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there were fewer that were what we called self-pay. But the actual taking care of the patient didn't change. Yeah. Um, the financial side of it, uh, sometimes affects um, patient care by uh, limiting what's available to them to take care of the patient. Yeah. That's, oh, that's too, that's, uh, the decisions are made up high. That's too expensive. We're not going to buy that piece of equipment or we're not going to have that drug on our formulary. Um, but I would say in general, the actual care of patients is as good or better uh, than it ha ever has been. Um, it has shifted more to the nurse practitioner, physician's assistant model. Yeah. Um, uh, the if you get sick, uh, you're more and go to the doctor. Most likely, you're going to see a nurse practitioner or physician's assistant first. And because of the way they're trained compared to how doctors trained, you're going to get more tests. They tend to diagnose by testing rather than physical exam and history, mm -hmm. which is the way the old school, old school was. Sure. Um, it's not necessarily worse or, or not as good. You're just going to get a lot of tests. Mm -hmm. And um, then the doctor will approve what the nurse practitioner or the PA uh, thinks needs to be done. Sure. Um, as far as what needs to be done uh, healthcare-wise, uh, none of them really have to do with medicine. Uh, if I were king for a day, the first thing I would do is is make all insurance available from across the country, not just in, within your own state. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, make it come competitive. Uh, I would uh, I would ban all uh, drug ads on TV because the way those things work, they wouldn't do it if it wasn't working. And the way that works is. They show some woman doing yoga with her dog, and she's got a disease that if you're a physician and you've seen patients with that disease, <laughs> they're not doing yoga with their dog. <laughs> but some patient who's, who feels that bad, you know, yeah. they wish they could do yoga with their dog, they see that ad, and they say, I want that drug. That way I can get out there and, and be normal again. So they go to their doctor, and the doctor will say, well, I've got another drug that's a lot less expensive and does the same thing. And then the patient will say, no, I want that drug. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to go find a doctor who will. And so that's why those drug ads work, and that runs the cost of, of those medicines up. Um, those, would be, those would be two things right off the bat. Um, the other thing I would do is ban all nonprofit hospitals and insurance companies. Blue Cross Blue Shield is a nonprofit. Vanderbilt, St. Thomas, nonprofit. <clears throat> but they advertise more than the for-profit. I mean, they advertise at least as much as HCA does. Yeah. And um, they get a, a big head start tax-wise on on the for-profit hospitals. And, and for-profit's gotten a bad name, but what that means is they have to be efficient. Yeah. You know, if they're going to have a, be in the black at the end of the year, they've got to do things efficiently. And uh, having been in both systems, both working in them and being patients in both of them, the care is equal. The the for-profit 
uh, care is every bit as good as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So if you think about how much money uh, St. Thomas and Vanderbilt and any of the any of the nonprofits uh, gain by being, having that status, uh, when in fact they operate as a for like a for profit. Uh, it's um, not fair to the consumer, I don't think. Interesting. Yeah. So those are some things I would see, and th- and those have nothing to do with patient care. Yeah. And that has to do with um, how how things get financed. Interesting. So it's a follow the money. Mm-hmm. Follow the money. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I never really thought about the issue of being able to buy insurance that's good all around the country versus you know Blue, Cl- Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. Right. And never really thought of it that way. That would. Mm-hmm. What's preventing that? It, it is a political thing. It's. Um, I'm not sure the legal side of it so much, mm-hmm. but that's why we have an insurance commissioner. Mm. You know, each state has their insurance commissioner, and so Blue Cross Blue Shield wants to go and raise their raise their rates. They've got to go to the commissioner, and it's one of those almost every three years he stamps it. Okay, you can do it. It's it's a system that has no competition in it. Um, Interesting. Uh, fortunately, some of the other carriers, Aetna, uh, Humana, have have put up a pretty good fight against Blue Cross Blue Shield, but they're still the the 900-pound gorilla. Yeah, they are. Because they have no competition other than those two, mm-hmm. really. But if they had to compete with, say, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield in New Mexico or North Dakota, you know, if I, if I didn't like the rates in Tennessee, I said, I'll get my insurance out of North Dakota, you know. Yeah. But they can't, I can't do that because of the, because of the laws. Hmm. Well, we need you for king for a day. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. That is very interesting. Doesn't surprise me that it would be bogged down with some type of political agenda Mm -hmm. because it has to be somebody's going to, if the country's going to gain, somebody's going to lose. And somebody who's going to be losing is probably lobbying pretty hard to make sure they don't lose. Guarantee you the the hospital lobby, the pharmacy, you know, big pharma, um, insurance, all these. Big enterprises are lobbying hard in Congress, and, mm-hmm. and they have somebody in their back pocket that, that fights for them, and mm-hmm. nothing ever changes. Yeah. Well, you you've had the opportunity to see a lot of things. So, and you, you came into the military after Vietnam, mm-hmm. and that was probably the first time that our country was kind of divided on what we were doing as a country to, mm-hmm. to keep our country safe, and. It, and I don't really think it's really ever re- recovered since then. And now we're in probably the most divisive time that I can think of since I've been alive mm-hmm. in our country. And I might, uh, whether it's been more divisive in the past before I was born, I don't, I don't know. But I, this is, is pretty remarkable of a time that there's ever been. And I pay attention to a lot of things that you've talked about and the things that you've put out on social media. You're very well thought out, man. What is it that you see going on that is the most disturbing to you? And what would you like to see going forward as we got this, what I expect to be the most insane election of, of my lifetime yeah. coming up? Yeah. And it's going to have, I believe there's going to be, unfortunately, some tumultuous moments. Whoever wins, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. <clears throat> You've seen a lot. You're a very smart man. What, what What is it that has you the most concerned or what has you the most hopeful? And what would you like to see going forward? Well, for sure, the most concern 
concerning thing to me is the media. Um, during Vietnam, the media was not really uh, overtly for or against our involvement in Vietnam. Uh, they certainly reported what happened there, but uh, even Walter Cronkite uh, reported the news. He didn't put a political spin. sway on it, yeah. a spin on it. Uh, and that's completely changed. Um, if you watch the the 530 National News on the, the three major networks, um, it's almost every topic they bring up of current events, they throw a political jab at Trump or his administration. Mm -hmm. um, they, they just can't help themselves. And the, you know, trauma and turmoil sells viewing time or sells newspapers was the old sure. saying. And so the media doesn't um, report any good news, hardly any good news. Every, every disaster is, you know, uh, front and center. And any, anything good happening is buried 15, 20 minutes into the, into the segment, if they report it at all. And so what uh, is happening, I think, is uh, the media magnifies something that is important but not mainstream, not uh, um, um, nation-changing. Yeah. But they magnify it to the point it seems like that. So that the the viewing audience thinks that we have a disaster waiting around every corner when in fact the country's rocking along just fine. Yeah. And um, and by doing that, they've got our our country uh, starting to line up on either side of a line. You're either for or you're against. Yeah. There's no well. I could see both sides. No, no. You got to be for or against. And that, that is hurting us really badly, I think. Um, if, again, if I were king for a day, I would, uh, I would have three networks that uh, showed the other side of the political coin, and then I'd have three networks that all they did was the news. Mm -hmm. And the smart people <coughs> would watch the channels that all they showed was the news. That's right. You know? Um, so that, that's one of the things that I think has changed dramatically between growing up in the Vietnam era and now is the media is, um, is a political arm. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a left-leaning political arm. <clears throat> so that's, that's where I, I see the biggest uh, problem. Uh, the um, most positive <coughs> thing, I think, is the fact that because the media does magnify things out of proportion, that we have a population that uh, still believes in the American dream and the American ideal, and they just don't have a venue to voice that. Yeah, no kidding. Their only venue is the election. And uh, whether you like Trump or you don't like Trump, uh, the what I do remember was Nixon was very disliked, at least from what the media showed in the 1972 election. And I remember a lot of folks were worried whether he'd get reelected. And then, of course, he won in a landslide. And it was the same, building up to the election, the 72 election, it was the same mindset. Is There's no way Nixon's going to get reelected. You know, the country's too divided on Vietnam. And then, of course, he got, I think he got 72%, 73% of the vote or something like that. Hmm. It, was a, it was a big win. And uh, 
So that's where I think the American population makes their makes their voices known is in the election. Yeah. So we'll see. It's, yeah, we are definitely going to see. Mm-hmm. It is has never been more up in the air than it is right now. It seems. Yeah. Because I mean, in January it looked like it was <clears throat> it could be that big of a landslide again with with Trump winning, and now it doesn't. I mean, it appears from what is being reported that it's pretty close again. Yeah. So it's going to be, and I think that our country is so split in half that mm-hmm. no matter who wins, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of noise made November fifth. I do believe. Yeah. Now I really am frightened that uh, if Trump does win, there will be violence. You know, I'm afraid that if he loses, there might be violence. There might, but I, you know, I don't think the conservatives are violent in general over the over the years I've been alive. Yeah. Uh, the the conservatives tend to be rule followers, you know, and they don't, they like the tea party is a great example. Yeah. They had lots of, of, uh, demonstrations, but they were all peaceful. There was no violence at any of them. And then you have these, uh, George Floyd, Floyd protests and demonstrations. And thanks to instigators, they've mostly all end up being violent. Yeah. It's kind of fascinating. When it, when it all went down, I was not in Nashville and there was, the the writing and we were very fortunate because we had minimal amounts in Nashville but I had people that were down there saying that it was so sad that it actually the people that were there to demonstrate were actually demonstrating peacefully and there was these people that didn't like that didn't seem like they belonged in any part of the argument that were doing all the damage yeah and yeah. it looked like it was almost like a paid it was like paid violence mm-hmm. to interfere with a peaceful demonstration and that ended up being the kind of the common, the common conversation across multiple cities was like the people that were there for Black Lives Matter, so to speak, were trying to do their job peacefully, mm-hmm. trying to do it the right way. And like there was this alter group that was there to create havoc and what have you to the point where it almost seems like some of the, the leaders of that cause are starting to be, maybe we're, this isn't working. Yeah. Because we're, what we're trying to do is being overshadowed by violence that's somehow being attached back to what we're doing instead of what's really going on. Yeah, it really detracts from the message that Black Lives Matter is trying to make when you have windows breaking and fires being set and um, beating people over the head with sticks, you know. Yeah. Uh, that certainly is not the message that Black Lives Matter wants to portray. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and I, so I imagine, if, say, if Trump wins, if if those if Antifa, whoever they are, if if they uh, have to face another four years of Trump, there's no telling what kind of violence they'll provoke. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. Well, the good news is is that uh, the the other piece that I wanted to discuss with you doesn't invoke violence, which would be your you you took a very what what appears from the face value is a thankless job of being a president of a country club <laughs> during a during a coming right out of the economic downturn mm-hmm. that our country went through and at that particular point we had just kind of like really tried to upgrade the club bad timing but it ended up working out great your love of golf and your love of hillwood mm-hmm. uh is obvious and the passion that you 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 be involved at the club and how much you love the game Talk to us about the journey in golf for you and the process 
of becoming the president of one of the best clubs in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And what was that process like compared to what you thought it might be like? Well, uh, going back to the beginning of golf, I, my dad was a golfer and never had a lesson. He would have been a good golfer if he had because he, he would shoot in the high 70s or low 80s, <clears throat> but no lessons. And so because he played, my brother and I would play at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started playing when I was about 11. But again, I had no lessons except from my dad who never had lessons. So, <laughs> so, so I ingrained a lot, a lot of bad habits. And, um, and so flash forward, I get in the Navy and there's no, really no way to play much golf when you're in the Navy. I was in for 12 years. Mm-hmm. And, and then med school, you're tied up so much that you don't. And same with residency, you just don't have yeah. any time. <clears throat> but I still played as much as I could. Um, it wasn't until we moved to Nashville and I started practicing that um, I had the opportunity to have some free time uh, mm-hmm. to play. And we lived about a block from Hillwood at the time. And I would drool as I drove by every time. <laughs> and so finally, I, you know, we, I was making enough money that I could afford to join. And uh, that was 29 years ago. And um, so... Through Hillwood, I started, you know, learning how to play the game for real. You know, you don't move the ball on the fairway. Give yourself a good lie, you know, (laughs) the way the Duffers play. And um, for my 40th birthday, my wife, Susie, gave me a uh, golf school. And it was, uh, she she didn't know which one to pick. So we had done our residency in North Carolina. So she picked Pinehurst. Oh, fun. Yeah, which actually for me, being an engineering mind was perfect because – their um, approach to the, uh, learning golf is 90% of the game is before you move anything, you know, set up, ball position, grip, all that. Mm-hmm. You haven't moved, you haven't moved anything yet, and that was good for the way I think. So uh, I went from about a 15 handicap to a six in about oh six months, I guess. Oh, great! Just because of I finally learned how to get my shoulders square and put the ball in the right spot not back in my stance like my dad taught me mm-hmm. <laughs> so um <clears throat> so that uh that's where golf really um uh became much more fun for me sure but i also recognize too that the better you get the more you have to play and practice and uh, with kids growing up I, that that limited me a little bit until they got old enough that got old enough that they didn't want to be around me anymore you know <laughs> <laughs> and that does happen Um, but uh, as you said Hillwood is such a great country club because of the friends the the people and the friendships I made in that first five or six years um, when Hillwood was at the time at that time struggling as well we were coming off of a of a um, down economic downturn in the Mm -hmm. late 80s and then uh, a lot of the members moved out to the golf club when the golf club was built. Mm-hmm. So they were struggling for members. Um, so it was a time when Hillwood was having to rebuild. And uh, and through those friendships, and I ended up being on the board uh, the first time around 2000, the year 2000, when we were renovating the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when I also realized that most... Um, most jobs like that are thankless because the members that are outside think the board is doing things completely in a self-centered manner, <laughs> you know, just trying to make everything great for them, which is the exact opposite of the way it really is. Yeah. 
And uh, so flash forward about 10 more years, uh, we were going through that renovation and everything was looking really good. And then the crash happened um, and we were able to get through it pretty much even with the crash. Yeah. But there were some economic things that happened that uh, we had to, you know, kind of work our way through. And uh, so I was I was asked if I'd be on the board again. I said, sure. And then. Little did I know I was walking into, and so were the other board members, into something that was going to be a couple years struggle yeah. to get through. But, uh, again, the members, the the good members st- stuck with us, and and um, it turned out great. Yeah, it really is. Like, to me, Hillwood has gotten better. I've been a member since 2004. From 2004 to 2020 right now, Every year has been an upgrade. Mm-hmm. It's been and it's such a great, great golf course. The thing I love about Hillwood is that when you, every time you play Hillwood, you have to clean all your clubs because you have to use all your clubs. Yeah, where there are some golf courses where you hit like five clubs all day long, maybe six clubs all day long, mm-hmm. and you know that's the to me like I love golf course architecture. And one of the things that makes Hillwood so special to me is like certain pin placements make that hole a birdie hole and you come back again tomorrow and it is not a birdie hole and it <laughs> is hoping very hard that you can make a par on that hole yeah and having greens as as perfect and as fast as we have them that keeps you know that's the defense of hillwood country club is yeah. is our greens what you were you were probably involved somewhat in on the board when we went from bent to bermuda yeah so talk to us about that decision and how it is definitely, of all the things that I've seen in, and since I've been in Tennessee, so that's since '97, the transformation of these summer grasses for the for the South, mm-hmm. the making the the blade of Bermuda grass much thinner, and has totally changed the quality of the golf course that we play, and how the expenses of having to water bent so much mm-hmm. and not having to do that. Now I'm sure that the money is shifted from one thing to another, but it made the playing surface in the time of year that we play the most golf infinitely better, like 10 times better than oh, it was. Yeah. yeah. Talk to us about that. that time. Well, interesting. I was on the golf committee when we were going through that in 2010, we had a terrible heat wave. Yeah. Uh, late uh, mid July to the end of August. And uh, golf courses that had bent were losing their greens all over the place. We actually closed for six weeks just to take the traffic off of them mm-hmm. so that we could, you know, have, still have greens. And at that, that was at the point that uh, David King and Stuart Smith uh, started looking into should we change our greens. And we knew we were going to have a renovation coming up because the course needed new irrigation, new mm-hmm. bunkers, and so forth. So I was on the golf committee at the time, and we started looking at the options. And at the time, the only bent grass that could tolerate the Middle Tennessee summers was A1, A4 bent. Mm -hmm. And then we had the Ultra Dwarf Bermudas, the Champion and um, Mini Verde. And Mini Verde. And so the golf committee started calling around uh, the courses in Middle Tennessee and West Tennessee that had both of those greens. And we also, I can't remember his name, but we also had a fellow come in and uh, consult with us who had been the greenskeeper at Augusta. And he had, if I remember right, he had brought Bermuda to Augusta. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and or maybe he brought A1A4. Can't quite remember, but I do remember one of the points he made is is you guys don't have the luxury of closing for eight months out of the year like we did. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, but he was not a proponent of either one. He wasn't pushing one or the other. Um, so, the golf committee went and played the various courses that had the, those types of grasses. And the final selling point is they went to Atlanta and they played the uh, Atlanta Athletic Club courses. Mm -hmm. And they had two 18 holes. One was A1A4 bent and the other one was Champion Bermuda. And it would, they played it in September, so it's still pretty warm down yeah. there. And the experience was the uh, Bermuda was faster. And, uh, but the bent being the Atlanta Athletic Club, sure. they, they were in great shape too. So the final uh, question that was asked was to the pro was which of these two 18s do the members like the best? And the pro said they like the Bermuda the best. And for two reasons. One is they can run them faster in the summer. And the other one was there's no frost lay in the winter <laughs> as opposed to the bent. Yeah. And, and since they had seen and experienced both types of grasses, we made the decision to go to Champion Bermuda, and uh, and we never looked back. I mean, I, like you said, it's a, it's the greatest putting surface ever. Yeah, it's so good, and um, no, hardly any ball marks, even to this mm -hmm. day. I mean, the very beginning, you couldn't, you could, you had to look for your smear <laughs> the first <laughs> yeah, year. Yeah. But I mean, was there a bruised piece of grass somewhere? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but other than that, but even today, I mean, they're still remarkably, remarkable in their quality and firmness but yet they do like now you can easily see where your ball landed but they're still the what the green looks like the health of the green is infinitely better with mm -hmm. Bermuda grass yeah and and being able to run them at 12 or 13 in the summer you can never do that with bent mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that that fellow from Augusta said was he he said you guys don't realize it with your bent grass but your greenskeeper could lose a green in two hours if he's not paying attention you know, if you get a summer rain and, and there's a, any pooling and then the sun hits on it, it'll it'll fry the Bermuda or the bent. bent. Mm -hmm. So, and that's kind of what, why we had our um, greenskeeper change at the time was our the previous greenskeeper knew that the greens were everything. And if he yeah. lost the greens, he lost his job. So he spent so much time keeping our greens alive that he neglected some of the rest of the course. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, which was kind of unfair to him, but that's that was the nature of the beast. Yeah, no and, doubt. Uh, so now with greens that uh, are not nearly as vulnerable, our greenskeeper can pay attention to the other things that he needs to, mm -hmm. and that's why it gets better every year. No doubt about it. So true. When you uh, think, who were the big impetuses? Obviously, your dad and your brother, but who were like the people that you took lessons from, or who were the people that steered your game to be such a great player that you are today? Um. Well, um, other than the golf school, uh, probably the guys that have given me the best um, golf advice outside of taking lessons are uh, David King mm -hmm. and uh, Hibby Barrier. Yeah. Hibby is just such a natural player, and I've always had trouble lining up to the right, mm -hmm. getting too closed, and then having trying to force it back to the target. And... I struggled with getting line up, getting my line up, and Hibby gave me a tip once. He says, "Well, once you get your line, 
get your club lined up and then look at your target and don't look down anymore. Just keep adjusting your body till it looks right all the while looking at the target. Yeah. And without a doubt, that's been the best day-to-day tip I've ever gotten. And then David King was, uh, he's such a good golfer and he just, he was more, uh, of uh, the psyche, psychological coach. Yeah. You know, well, you're just thinking too hard. Or you're, you know, you're focusing on that and you really need to focus on this, the bigger picture, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those two guys are big influences. Yeah, two, two great guys right there. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Like, Hibby looks like he's he's never needed a lesson in his life, although I've taught <laughs> him some. Uh-huh. He's got the one of the most fluid motions, like Sam Snead esque in his fluidity. And, and David King, who played at the University of Tennessee, uh, another very good player, it strikes me like as we as people get older, they generally lose their putting skill. David King still seems to make his unfair share of putts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Every time I play with him, yeah, he has seven less putts than I do. It hurts my feelings <laughs> a little bit. Well, it's all about putting anyway. You know. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know. You drive, it's important. You can't really enjoy the game if you can't drive the golf ball. But you can't win if you can't putt. Yeah, yeah. I think they've seen, since they've been doing shot link on the PGA Tour, only nine or ten times has somebody with negative strokes gained putting won. And like four of them are Vijay Singh. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, Vijay, he he hit it so good, especially in that, that, that era of like, oh, 06 to 2010 where he won like 30 times Mm -hmm. uh he hit it so good that i mean he was putting like cross-handed reverse claw (laughs) you know and it looked awful (laughs) and he still would win seven times a year which is pretty amazing but yeah you have to be able to to putt it well to compete and and feel good and you know one of our members is a longtime member won the junior club championship is a bunch one a bunch on the PGA tour Brant Snedeker um to be able to have coached Brant for so long and to watch the the almost seems like there that his his uh gift is a god-given gift for the ball to go in the hole with his putter because mm-hmm. we I mean I used to I've spent so much time with him especially when he was at Vanderbilt in his first couple years on tour where I would chalk line putts and I would do, I would test them be like over and over again before I'd snap the chalk line to make sure that they're right. Because I mean, at the time I was teaching like eight PGA players mm-hmm. on top of most of the best college players around. So I want to make sure that the chalk lines were right. So I'd set up over, man, I'd and I'd I'd put a line on my ball, and my ball would roll perfectly into and boom in the middle of the cup. And Brant would walk up, put the ball. That's wrong. What are you talking about? It's wrong. It's not two inches outside left, coach. I said, watch, Brant. So I put my ball down. I hit a ball roll perfectly under rim right in the middle of the hole. He goes, that is not, that's not a, a watch. So he'd hit it. He'd aim it in, inside the left edge. The ball, I'd line it up for him. His ball would wobble. It wouldn't even <laughs> right in the middle of the hole. I'm like, how did you do that? He goes, you, you're, too, you're too trying to be too perfect. Mm-hmm. Just get up there, see the shot you want to hit. But it was interesting. He always hit it slightly off the heel. Mm-hmm. And he obviously had that little short pop stroke, but he always hit it slightly in the heel. He had a Scotty Cameron putter that he putted with for six or seven years, and it was interesting. He had a little a little impact hole, what looked to be a good quarter of an inch in the heel on his putter. On his putter, 
And it's it's like he's very he doesn't like to change his equipment at all. So I mean, he's had that same Odyssey putter. He even had that Odyssey putter when I coached him. He he moved to that Scotty Cameron for a while and then went back to it. Mm-hmm. It's a Rossi now. I think he's changed the face a couple of different times, like the insert. But that's the putter, and the grip looks like it's like it's dilapidated. It's <laughs> it's been through hell and back for from him. But to be around somebody that obviously ascended the number six in the world, that was the highest he's ever been. And to see the difference in a mindset between somebody that makes it that high up and then literally I've taught easily 25 or 30 players that hit it better than Brandt, mm-hmm. that can't beat Brandt. Mm-hmm. And to watch how he thrived on being that underdog-esque type player mm-hmm. and how much he focused on the, the chipping, pitching, and putting in his daily practice. Mm-hmm. He really helped me understand, like, one, the mindset of a champion, and two, like, how he never he, – now, he can get a little loopy with his golf swing. Like, he can get really down a, a burrowing hole trying to be perfect. <laughs> uh-huh. But he quickly gets out of that because he knows he's an artist. He, mm-hmm. just, know, he just has to see it. Yeah. <clears throat> and then he goes with it. And it makes it a lot easier to take on flag sticks when you're going to make every stinking putt yeah. you have to look at. Yeah. Well, that, you said it a couple of times, perfect. Um, you were asking what influenced me. One of the, by far, the, the most influential thing in my game was reading a book by Bob Rotella, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. Yeah. I know you've read it. And in your uh, Facebook uh, page, you talk about the, the mind game a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, with putting, I've, I've turned into a pretty good putter. Yes, you have. Because of of reading that book of in my mind being again, again being an engineer uh, i like to think of straight lines mm-hmm. and so if i think a putt's going to break a cup to the left i'll pick a spot a cup to the right and then hit a straight putt to that mm-hmm. and uh that uh, and it works with chipping as well for me yeah uh that was by far the most influential book on mm-hmm. golf i've ever read and again because it also talks about golf's not a game of perfect either. yeah you have to think about uh, visualizing the shot and picking targets and mm-hmm. um, and not getting upset with your last shot and only thinking about your next shot. All those mind things that make you a good golfer. Yeah. Yeah, that's the – I'm trying to pass that on to a bunch of kids. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think sometimes the expectation values placed on certain shots, they the kids are so impressioned by – what they watch on Sunday afternoon with the best players playing the best golf, how close they hit it when they're under the gun, nervous. That that's how it. That's what it's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't get a chance to watch the guy who finished tied for forty seventh. Let that's Tiger because they'll show Tiger every shot Tiger yeah. hits. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting to watch how if you if you have a sandwich in your hand and you hit it to ten feet. Like a 15-year-old really good player will be absolutely furious that he hit it to 10 feet. And then you and I hit it to 10 feet. I'm like, yeah. For, for time <laughs> I, can time make, experience. I can make that play. <laughs> time and experience play a huge role in your enjoyment and the pressure that is taken uh, in this game. Mm-hmm. To, where did you – when you think about the times that you went from like the 15 to the 6 and now the 6 you're chipping away at it, what's your handicap now? 
Well, now I've had some health issues, so I'm up to an eight. But uh, I generally uh, don't play him at an eight, folks. Don't play Travis at an eight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I usually was somewhere between a zero and a three. Yeah, Just, you know, kind of a little sine wave. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but uh, a lot of it was that book. I was a six at the time. Um, it was funny. It was that we were getting ready to play our big member guest, and my brother was my guest, and I was uh, working like crazy at work and. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to get off for the tournament, I had to take extra calls. So I had no sleep that week, and I was trying to get through that book. And I only got through about half of it and before the tournament started. Sure. And, and as you know, it's, uh, it's five nine-hole matches. And I was a six at the time. And I shot one over on each of the five nine-hole matches. So that would make me a two Mm -hmm. theoretically. And I know every one of our opponents was dog cussing me. (laughs) Yeah. What a sandbagger. (laughs) But all I was doing was doing what he said in that book is pick a target and Mm -hmm. and hit the target and pick your line and make it a straight putt. I mean, I was making things that uh, you make it everything and chipping in. And I mean, it was was crazy. (laughs) And, uh, and so, uh, that's when I realized too, how important a short game was. There was years I probably, when I was hovering around scratch, uh, there were four or five years. I never went to the long range. Mm -hmm. Uh, I only went to the short range and putted uh, because that's, that's where I knew uh, if I was going to score, I was going to be doing that. Like 66% of the game is with a wedge and a putter, Mm -hmm. whether it's a full wedge chip bunker bunker shut or a putt you know if you think about it if you're supposed to have you know, 30 putts in a round mm-hmm. and you have four part we have five part fives so there's more than likely five wedges there mm-hmm. and we have one two three par fours that are short enough that you have a wedge that's like that's almost 40 shots right there and that doesn't count any poor shots that you've missed greens with mm-hmm. i mean more than likely you're looking at between 10 and 12 wedge shots and 30 putts there's 40 to 42 strokes and if you shoot you know if if you're looking to shoot even par you know 72 well that's that's a pretty hefty percent that's 60 like it's 63 percent of your game yeah was with a wedge and a putter and yet we spend infinite amount of time working on four irons and eight irons that you (laughs) hit like you might hit one four iron a day yeah and you might hit three eight irons in a day but you definitely hit, you hit 14 drivers, 30 putts, and probably 12 wedge shots. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's 56 shots of a 72 with three clubs. Yeah. So one of my big keys is you own those three clubs. If you own those three clubs, you can play golf anywhere enjoyably. Yeah. You know, and that's that's basically how I, I put my whole system in my mind is that there there's, in my opinion, there's four kinds of golfers. There's the beginner novice golfer. <clears throat> there's a person who uh, loves the game that wants to take it to the next level. There's the competing amateur. And then there's the professional golf. So and when I, that second group, which is somebody who wants to take their game to the next level, that's everybody from 30 handicap to, you know, probably even a plus two to be that, you know, like, mm-hmm. like a Stuart Smith, you know, he's, he still competes, but it's more about his joy and love for the game that drives him not so much trying to win the senior am yeah it's just how much he loves the game mm-hmm. that is the one that's a lar- a lion's share of what i teach which is people really if they give them a choice between hitting it solid 
every shot and shooting 78 or kind of scraping it around and shooting 73, they'll take hitting it solid and shooting 78 all day long because mm-hmm. that's what most people put in their mind is what golf is. How mm-hmm. good did you hit it? Yeah. Not many people think of it as the score. I know that you think of it as the score. Not everybody likes to hit it good, mm-hmm. but you think of the game as what do I got to do to win, mm-hmm. shoot the lowest score, and I don't really care as much how I'm going to hit it. I'm just going to score. There's a scorer's mindset, and then there's almost like a golf purist mindset. Yeah. And they're, they're two separate animals. Yeah. So. Yeah, I would have loved to have been a purist, but I just knew I wasn't ever going to be. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I did have a round once uh, when I was about scratch where I shot an even 72 and I hit one green. Wow. You know, I just got up and down from everywhere. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why that short game is so important. Sevy. Good job, Sevy. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about the things that have made you great and all the things that you've been through and to get to where you are today, but we would be remiss to think that it was a straight shot from teenage life through the Navy, anesthesiologist, and enjoying life as you as you have without there being some moments in your life where you had to dig deeper than you ever thought possible and you found the level of perseverance and grit to help you get through things. Talk to us about any particular thing that you've that you've had to endure that brought out a level of perseverance and grit in you that you didn't know you had that you rely on today to overcome the difficult things that life has for everybody. Well, I'd, I'd say probably we talked about it earlier was that uh, first two to three years of med school when, you know, I basically showed up with no support system. Um, And I had basically at that point spent 12 of my 30 years of life in the Navy where Mm -hmm. it's kind of like having a, a, you go from your parents to a new parent called the Navy. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. They pretty much tell you where you're going and when you're going to do it and how you're going to do it. And so life was kind of carved out uh, until I, got out in when at age 30 mm-hmm. and uh and there were so many times where well for three or four years I felt like I was just on extended leave I was still in the navy um and in a way that helped because I still kept that discipline mm-hmm. um but there were many times where I was uh, uh if if a, one of my former squadron mates had shown up at my door and said hey come on back I'd have probably gone <laughs> is that right just because yeah because the um the academic load in medical school is um, is pretty tough. It's there's nothing academically that's difficult, really. Uh, some of the biochemistry was was tougher, but most of it is pretty straightforward memorization stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the difference is, it's a whole four years of college in about 15 months. That's the that's oh wow. It's the volume that weighs you down. <clears throat> so. Um, when I was studying, you know, and having to grind through all that stuff. And I was thinking back, you know, just a year ago, I was going supersonic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I really liked that. Uh-huh. Um, it was, that was probably the most trying time I had. And then, uh, fortunately, I met Susie uh, after, towards the end of my first year. Mm-hmm. And uh, so by the time I was in my third year, we were uh, engaged and, and so life was a little bit more normal. Yeah. I'd had a support system now. Yeah. But that was probably the roughest um, 
time where I could say I had to grind, just literally grind my way through it and stick with what I what I'd committed to. I would imagine um, the military helped you there too, because it's there's a, a, certainly a, a mindset that's required to make it through basic training and all the other things that you had to go through. <clears throat> but it's it's funny because we could look at a lot of things that you've you've been through that could be physically trying mm-hmm. or emotionally trying. But I've always found that the things that tax us mentally are the ones that, because our brain uses the most energy of any part of our body, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that it's what really exhausts the fumes is the things that you have to do to mentally stay at a high peak when things aren't going exactly the way you wanted to. Yeah, the Plieve summer um, at the Naval Academy uh, is pretty rugged. And uh, you just, you're constantly exhausted, you know, Mm. physically and mentally exhausted but uh one of the things that got me through anything that was particularly hard that i thought was going to be hard was uh, i would think well why can't you do it i mean there's been thousands of midshipmen who've gone through plebe summer and they did it so why can't you do it Mm -hmm. and then (laughs) one of the things that and you saw it in the movie uh um Officer and a gentleman, the Dilbert Dunker, the mm-hmm. the thing that splashes into the pool. Yeah, uh, that got so much hype that when we, and everybody, every naval aviator has to do it every three years, and so I, I probably did it a total of five or six times. But that first time, the hype is so uh, mind-boggling that you could drown. You know, you could you're going to fail. You're going to flunk out of flight school because you can't do the Dilbert Dunker. Um, that that I, I never never forget thinking as I'm sitting there and I'm getting strapped in. Uh, you know, there have been thousands of naval aviators who've done this before ahead of you, and so why can't you do it? Mm-hmm. And that those there's maybe a handful of times in life in my life where I've had that thought come in and give me some a little emotional support. You know, yeah. That if other people could do it, why can't I do it? You know, that thing. That's the thing that I'm always looking for is like. Fear, by and large, is mostly imagined. Obviously, mm-hmm. there are times in our life where we're actually in danger. But a lot of the times, we're, we're in a scenario where our brain gets a little overactive and a, a little too creative, so to speak, in the situation. And it, we create false narratives or f- like imagined things that interfere with reality and become interference for us to accomplish what we wanted to do. Yeah. And I do find that interesting that you could draw on the idea of, well, if thousands of people have done it before me, I, I know that I can do this. I wonder how much of what I'm getting ready to do is just false emotions appearing mm-hmm. real. Well, and that's what it was is, you know, after you did it the first time, it was disorienting. But uh, it was not that difficult. You know, they tell you what to do, and you do it, and you, and you bob out to the surface. Yeah. I will tell you one story. I had to punch out of an airplane once, um, an F-18 back in, uh, it was almost 30 years ago, uh, almost 40 years ago. Jeez. Um, anyway, as I was descending in the airplane, uh, I was descending at 500 feet per second. And I was going through my procedures that I was I was trying to get through to see if I could salvage the situation, and I couldn't salvage it. And so I ended up having to eject and uh, lost the airplane. <clears throat> so 
the F-18 had two radios, mm-hmm. and there was a thumb switch on the right throttle. If you pushed it forward, it was one frequency. If you pulled back, it was the other. And I had one of my radios on the tactical frequency, <clears throat> and the other one was on air traffic control. So as I was descending, I was in a spin. As I was descending the spin, I was talking on the tactical frequency, and I can remember pretty much verbatim everything I said on that, on that channel. It was all over in 34 seconds. Mm-hmm. In that 34 seconds, I made maybe half a dozen transmissions that I could remember. <clears throat> and wow. then uh, about two weeks later, they were doing something called a line of duty investigation. And the guy doing it pulled the uh, transcripts from air traffic control. And it turned out I was a chatterbox on air traffic control. <laughs> I was, you know, just talking almost not random, but uh, free, freedom of thought, free, you know, yeah. uh, stream of consciousness almost. Yeah. And the, the way I can describe it is on the tactical frequency, I said, okay, passing 5,000 feet, I'm getting out. I mean, I'm going to eject. On, and I had no recollection of this. Never, ever had I, did I remember saying this on the air traffic and control frequency i said okay that's it for me i'm out of here <laughs> so <laughs> i had no recollection to say in that and so like you were saying you when there's fear involved uh your brain because i was afraid yeah i'll tell you i was very afraid i had one part of my brain through training and discipline that was functioning the way i was supposed to and then i had this other one that was being completely commanded by fear that was fortunately for me being shut down by the the other half of my brain. Yeah. But the fact that I had literally two personalities going on for that 34 seconds, uh, I can't explain it to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the when fear overcomes that discipline side, that's when you get out of control and, and good things usually don't happen. That's exactly right. Yeah, you experience flow state. Mm-hmm. Like when think you obviously those thirty four seconds took about ten minutes. Yeah, it's uh, and actually in med school we had a lecture about that. It's called time expansion, and mm-hmm. it's about a factor of five. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you're about to be in a car wreck, let's say it's inevitable you're going to hit that tree, time slows down, and you almost can see it happening foot by foot. Yeah. And that's because your brain allows you to react and it goes into a, a warp speed mode so you can react uh better yeah it's so fascinating watching i've I get deep in the this group of people called the flow genome project where they're doing massive studies on human performance and how things are humans are doing things that they've never done before faster stronger <clears throat> more elite than ever before and they're people are coming out of these experiences and they can't even they don't even know what happened Mm-hmm. They don't even know how it happened. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody just surfed like an 88 foot wave and they were doing like 49 miles per hour on a surfboard. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he like, he always remembers is that his feet felt bizarrely glued to the board and that it felt so slow. Mm-hmm. But as he was going faster than anybody's ever gone on a wave so radically high that I can't even wrap my head around. Like, and then to understand that the brain slows down so much that he has unbelievable control is a flow state mechanism mm-hmm. that allows people to ex- achieve extraordinary things. And I just love that stuff. Yeah. I love to say, and I think we're, we're trying, although I think there are some in, environmental factors that elevate that moment. Uh, I'll always get fascinated to, to discuss like those 
the things that you went through, like you, you not knowing that you said those things, and there's things that you thought you were absolutely sure you remembered at all, and then there were moments in that 34 seconds that you don't remember at all, mm-hmm. while being absolutely sure that you could remember everything. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a pretty cool thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the second half of the podcast is about the things you like to do to recharge your batteries, and historically speaking, those were the things that a lot of people do together in like-mindedness to kind of fill up your cup. It's a lot easier to fill up your cup if you're in a large group going to a football game, concert, et cetera. Now, all of those things are on hold right now, but I'm sure you've had plenty of great moments where you've gone and done things. So what, what as you grew up, what were your favorite sports and your favorite teams and players? Well, growing up, baseball was my favorite sport. Um, I was pretty good at it, not good enough to play in college, but pretty good enough to play in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, being a baby boomer, that was America's sport, and everybody sure. played uh, played baseball. And that was in the day before there really wasn't coaching. wasn't coaching technique; it yeah. was more coaching personalities. Uh, I I think back if I'd had some coaching on technique, I'm I would have been so much better. Sure, because naturally I was pretty good, but but I didn't know what I was doing, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Football was a great example. I was pretty good. I wasn't very big, but I was athletic. Uh, but no, I never once got a lesson on how to how you block somebody uh, or how you uh, like wide receivers, how you catch a uh, a pass. You mm-hmm. see it today. There's obviously a perfect technique to do it. We didn't we didn't have any coaches tell us how to do it. And uh, uh, so anyway, uh, and then there weren't weightlifting. You know we. My summer before my senior year of high school, we got a universal machine, and uh, they set it up in the gym. And we, the football team, was in two days, and we went and basically played with it like uh, it was an item of curiosity. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, none of us lifted weights. Yeah, and uh, so it's it's so different. But back then, it was your basic baseball, basketball, football, and. Um, and so those were my my baseball was my favorite sport growing up, um, and then uh, golf took over. Yeah. And once I had the ability to play enough, mm-hmm. golf completely took over to me. And you were talking about how to recharge your batteries. Um, that to me is the way I recharge. It's uh, it's incredibly relaxing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, golf is even though you know you can get mad at shots or frustrated but it's it's such a relaxing four hours to me yeah and uh spending an hour on the short range you know just therapeutic therapeutic yeah you you um you can just let your mind go somewhere else yeah 100 percent so it's interesting because yesterday was a great example at the golf team practice and then decided the boys wanted to go to the to the golf club to hit hit some balls and there aren't many things left in life where you get to spend four or five hours with people that you love mm-hmm. doing something that everybody's enjoying, mm-hmm. you know. And to me, that's one of the great gifts of the sport, which is it's a it's a four hour, four and a half hour walk. Hopefully, and obviously, we spend mm-hmm. a lot of time riding, but I love walking. Yeah, and you just get out there with people that you care about, and you enjoy the nature and you enjoy the sport and the, the the lifelike nuances of hitting good shots that get punished and hitting bad shots that get good luck and bounce <laughs> up there. But it, it's so funny how golf is a huge 
recharge for people that enjoy the game because of the time that it takes and how it takes the phone out of your hand, or at least it should take the phone out of your hand. Mm -hmm. And you just like reconnect with a lot of things that we're slowly losing touch with. Yeah. But yeah, golf is, golf is amazing. Talk to me about the importance of Susie and her love for the game, how that has played a huge and vital role in your, your marriage, your life and your enjoyment of the, filling of your cup so to speak well a good example would be any typical couple's vacation you know uh we have good friends couples whose wife doesn't play golf and so it completely changes the complexion of their vacation because the uh, let's say they vacation in uh, uh, orlando where there's a million great golf courses and the husband uh, can either vacation with his wife and not play golf or play golf and not have any wife time. That's right. Um, so having a wife who plays golf is awesome because we can, you know, we can actually take golf vacations. Yeah. And uh, and then that's kind of a selfish deal too. If I we long time ago we set up this deal that if I play golf with her on Sunday, I play golf with the guys on Saturday. So it's a win-win for me. Yeah. I get to play golf twice and. I don't have to argue with her about. It. I want to go play with the guys, you know. Yeah. So that's a huge deal. I think that it's one of the most important pieces. And I'm I'm so glad. Like as I gave her a lesson uh, maybe ten days ago. She's gotten so much better, mm-hmm. and it's so fun to watch people who think that they're not sure that they can get better. Mm-hmm. Maybe they feel like whether well, I've just I've seen the top of the mountain, Virgil. I don't think, I, <laughs> and I'm like I don't think that you've seen the top of the mountain yet. Mm-hmm. So I know that she played really well a couple of days ago. She was super excited about, and but I mean that's the that's a beautiful thing. It's like to know that you could do something for four and a half hours, and you can get out there and go for a walk. And it's funny how just going for a walk and distracting your mind enough with a with a problem like a four iron from 192 off a slightly downhill lie can make it a lot easier to talk about things you need to talk about when you're when you're out there yeah and that's a it's a beautiful thing mm-hmm. i know you talked about your your favorite sport being baseball who was your favorite team and player uh the white Sox and uh louis aparicio louis aparicio yeah. which you know made no sense i was a lefty mm-hmm. uh and played outfield and first base, and uh, he was a shortstop, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I just uh, there's just something about him, the name, obviously, and then uh, he was just such a feisty little player. Oh yeah, um, so I loved him. But I, you know, baby boomers also grew up with all the the legends, the Yastrzemski's and the uh, Babe Ruth was gone, but the Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle, Mickey Mantle, and all those guys. So. Yeah. And I had all their cards. I mean, I had them all. I bet I had 3,000 baseball cards. And my mom, cleaning house after we had gone off to college, she threw them all away. <laughs> you know, what a, what a uh, disaster that was. <laughs> <laughs> There's millions and millions of dollars oh, in, in dumpster golly. piles across yeah, the we, world. <laughs> we had them all. But, uh, yeah, they, Louie was my, my favorite. And, of course, the White Sox at the time – it's been so long now, but they were always nibbling at greatness, but never quite got there. Yeah. Chicago seems to be snake bit a little bit because mm-hmm. the Cubbies had a long, a long drought that they recently broke. The, the White Sox had a couple of moments in time where they were 
a force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. And obviously the Bulls had a nice run, but before Michael Jordan and after Michael Jordan has been kind of a flop. Yeah. The Blackhawks have been good, but I mean, Chicago is one of my favorite cities I've ever been. Mm -hmm. But they're kind of like snake bit city when it comes to enjoying their the greatness of their teams. Yeah. Because the Bears have also had lean, lean times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It really makes you realize how impressive the run of the Patriots has been. Yeah. And obviously, Tom Brady's a big part of that, but there's more to it than just Tom Brady. There's a formula that Belichick has mm -hmm. that he needs to bottle up and, and once he retires, sell it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think he will. <laughs> I yeah. think he'll sell it. Yeah. He'll sell his program. Even if he's not going to divulge the whole program, he'll sell it. Yeah. For sure. When you, uh, was music a big part of your life? Did you enjoy, you enjoyed like going to concerts or, and when you were growing up? Not, not really a verge. You know, it was funny. I think we got turned off to country music because growing up, uh, getting ready for school, my mom would have the TV on. And in the morning, there was, it was called Country Junction. And it was a uh, bluegrass country music channel. Uh -huh. And uh, Dolly Parton would be on there, and they'd have the steel guitars. And uh, if I heard a little running bear one more time, I was going <laughs> to shoot myself. You know? Because <laughs> <And laughs> they would play it every morning. Uh -huh. And um, so that got me turned off to country music uh -huh. for a long time. Um, but then growing up, getting a little bit older, when you get into high school, when you really start, you know, you, you're in that that mindset. I'm gonna, I want to be cool. Yeah. Um, the best album I ever got was Three Dog Night. They Three were my favorite Dog group Night. Growing up, yeah, Three yeah. Dog Night, and um, they're still still one of my favorites. And um, but I, I, it had to be some genetics. I must have had enough love of it because my oldest son loved music. I mean. That, that kid had, I don't know, 10,000 songs on his playlist and all genres. He, he went back to the baby boomer stuff. Uh -huh. he, he just loved music. So um, <clears throat> there had to be a genetic. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, the, uh, you know to me, music's run my, like everywhere I go, like I think when I'm going to Birmingham, I think when I was drove through there in 1992, I'd listen to a song and I'm like, Wow, like I was listening to my favorite band at the time was Alice in Chains, and like now I hear that song, and it takes me right back to that street in Birmingham. Like it's like it like music kind of stamps time travel for mm -hmm. me a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that I, you know, to be able to experience um, life through music, it's almost like I have my own soundtrack like, yeah. of eras of my life. I don't have positive memories in that way but i do have a negative one uh and during plebe summer mm -hmm. uh we would sit at tables for all of our meals and and it was not a fun experience it was not enjoying food at all it was yeah. just getting through it and uh oh um who, what was the name of that group um the carpenters oh the carpenters, the carpenters were big the summer of 70 uh-huh and at lunch they always were on the music in the mess hall and it got to the point that i hated the carpenters <laughs> hated them close to you that song played every day at lunch uh, close to you and i mean i tell you it would make me throw up if i heard it today 
<laughs> I only think I have all that is there was a time when I worked at Hermitage Golf Course where Hootie and the Blowfish's first album got st- like stuck in the CD player and they couldn't get the, 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 the CD wouldn't come out. Uh-huh. And they didn't want to break it to try to get it out. So we listened and they had the music playing all the time. I think I think Hootie and the Blowfish's first album played every day, all day long, for 150 straight days. I'm like, I have to listen to Hootie and the Blowfish one more day. Well, at least it was good music. <laughs> so true, so true. So, have you? Uh, do you? Uh, you and Susie like to travel? Like to go ch- check out all the parts of the globe? Yeah, yeah, we. Uh, um, haven't had the opportunity to go everywhere we wanted to, but we have done some travel, been to Europe and uh, um, Hawaii and uh, a little bit of Canada, uh, Mexico. We haven't, you know, globetrotted mm-hmm. to Asia or anything like What's that. What's been but, the coolest place you've ever been? Um, from my Navy days, not with Sue's, but from my Navy days, it was a little town um, in uh, Italy called Livorno. Um, every little town in Italy is pretty cool, yeah. but it was, uh, the, sh- our ship pulled in and, uh, it was just, uh, you, if you took it right out of a, 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 photo album, it was just perfect classic Italy with the, the church and mm-hmm. the little houses around the church. Um, that was probably one of the most magical experiences I had. Wow, and I, I remember it uh, specifically because on a Sunday morning, uh, we would we didn't want to be on the ship. So when the ship pulled in for a liberty call, we'd all get off the ship. We'd rent a room somewhere, and then that would be our our base of operations. And so we on a Saturday night, we'd been out had a dinner. Uh, we weren't out or anything, but we all went back to the the room and crashed. And I was awakened at about seven thirty in the morning with something cold on my chest and I look up and it was one of my squadron mates. My call sign was Cannon and it, and his call sign was Bluto. And Bluto had a cold uh, Budweiser <laughs> bottle sitting on my chest. He says, get up Cannon, we're going to go explore it. <laughs> and so we get up and we're, and it's Sunday morning in Italy, you know, mm-hmm. there's nothing open. It's Sunday. Yeah. And so we're just wandering around looking at the town and how beautiful it was. And then I hear this angelic voice coming out of a, out of the church. And it was almost like the, mer- the uh, uh, not the mermaids, the sirens. I just couldn't resist. Yeah. And I went to the side door and looked in and it was a nun, uh, and one of the nuns of the church singing a, a Catholic uh, gospel song, mm-hmm. but with the most incredible, perfect voice. Wow. That was, you know, going from a cold beer on my chest to, <laughs> to being mesmerized by a nun. I, I went full circle on you that one. You did go full circle. <laughs> that is so cool. That is fun. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any favorite, uh, like food or wines that you you like parts of the country that you've or the or the world that you've enjoyed like the the food and wine of uh, of a region? Oh yeah, Italy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the time when I was going on these deployments to the Mediterranean, I spent basically a year of my life in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And because Cold War and we potentially could be carrying nuclear weapons, there were, some of the countries in the Mediterranean didn't want us there. But Italy was okay with us 
go pulling into their ports. We were, they wouldn't let us tie up to the pier. We had to anchor off, and then we'd run Liberty boats back and forth. Mm-hmm. So I got to see a lot of Italy, and um, never once had a bad meal in Italy. Wow. And the the coolest thing was to go find this little hole in the mall restaurant somewhere, and get this incredible meal. And oftentimes they had their own vineyard somewhere and they made their own wine. So mm-hmm. the only place you could ever get that wine was in that little restaurant. And the wine was incredible, almost all reds, yeah. but just unbelievable wines that, uh, that, uh, you, you couldn't buy anywhere else. Um, and that was across the country. We, we actually went into Northern Italy. One, one of our, uh, port calls was in Trieste, Italy, mm-hmm. which is up the Adriatic Sea at the very top, right by what used to be Yugoslavia. And um, so we were eating northern Italian food up in Trieste and Venice, and the same thing. You, you just you could not find, you would have to ma- put a, a whole bucket of salt on it to make it taste bad. You know, <laughs> it was, every meal was delicious. Oh, and, uh, so Italy by far is, is the best. And then the other surprise was Ireland. We got to go to Ireland, um, about five years ago, mm-hmm. and I'd always heard how the food was no good in Ireland, and um, and that is a complete falsehood. The food we had was was really good. It wasn't as uh, as much variety, yeah, but it still was really. good. I found the fish to be remarkable yeah. in Ireland when I was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, um, John Dory was the fish that yeah. they had a lot of in uh, in yeah. Ireland when I was there. We had, the Tennessee PGA used to have a pro am, and we'd go to Ireland each mm-hmm. year and go over there. And there's like I couldn't get over the fact that their steaks are gray; they don't turn by how they cook it and the type of meat that they mm-hmm. that, that they like the cattle eat there. I mean, actually, the food that they makes the, it turn gray, so it's not like what it looks like in America, and it didn't taste right for me. Uh-huh. Maybe I don't know if the color just messed my taste buds yeah. up, but yeah. the fish was unbelievably good. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that their French fries were remarkable mm-hmm. too. Yeah. I mean, so the fish and chips piece was never let you down. But they, they're, the Irish food is simple, but but very good and yeah. underrated for sure. Yeah, I, yeah, it got a bad. It's getting a bad rep unfairly, I think. Yeah. yeah. Did you play golf in Ireland? Yeah, we did. Where'd you play? Um, we played at uh, Trey Lee, uh, Ballybunion, La Hinch. Those are the three. We got to yeah. play three times. What do you think of Tralee? Oh, no. We played uh, Royal uh, Royal County Down in Northern uh-huh. Ireland. We played that. So too. you allowed that one to kick your teeth in. <laughs> yes. oh, yeah. What a mean, mean golf <laughs> course really right was. there. Right? Yeah. Better keep in the fairway or, oh. you know, bring three dozen balls. Uh, my favorite was actually Tralee. Really? Yeah. The um, back nine's remarkable at Tralee. Well, and the hole that is, we'll never, I'll never forget that hole because it's the most beautiful hole I've ever seen. It was that par three that had the medieval watchtower mm-hmm. cut into the back of it. And then behind that was the straight. And then on the other side was the matching watchtower. Yeah. So you're standing on the tee and you're looking at this beautiful green and then this beautiful green water with the watch, medieval watchtowers. They're just spectacular. Yeah. So. Uh, and and a lot of those vistas along the holes in the, on the holes along the coast were like that too. Yeah. Just I just thought that was a beautiful golf course. I thought Bally Bunyan. Bally Bunyan is one of my all time favorite golf courses. It's yeah. easily my top ten that I've ever played. 
And I played it on a day in which the it, it had an uncustomary wind, which was straight down off of number one. Number um, one, you hit over the cemetery, right? In there, uh, yeah. The town cemetery is on the bites into the fairway mm -hmm. there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So they, the the caddy master is like, "Ain't nobody gonna break it today." <laughs> <laughs> and I just I found it funny because I, I the what made that golf course so difficult on the back nine with the wind blowing straight down off of one was the fact that every shot you hit on the back nine was in a crosswind. Mm -hmm. And I have found that straight into and straight down in that kind of wind, although it's unbelievably challenging, is one type of golf. But when you have dunes left and right, and they're no fun to be in, and you got the wind blowing 40 left to right or right to left, Mm-hmm. Virgil found out that he made an outrageously awesome career decision to only teach the game <laughs> because man, it was, I wasn't good enough. Like it really hurt my feelings. Cause I was four under through seven thinking not going to break 80. Uh, what are you talking about? And literally I made a 50 footer for double bogey on the last hole to shoot 79. Wow. And I've never felt more out of control than I was. And I was hitting it good. Um, I hit a shot and it would just, it would stay in the air forever, even though I tried to keep it down and it would blow 50, 60, 70 yards offline. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, I am not good enough to play in this. Yeah. It's really mentally hard to aim at trouble. Yeah. To, to counter a crosswind, you know, you got to hit it, take it out over the ocean. Mm -hmm. and have it blow back in it's just really hard to make yourself do that <laughs> well, yeah, I, was, I was not i was not wired for that and, and of course you know i don't like losing nobody does but mm -hmm. I, mean, I really don't like losing so i'm in the first group and i'm i've seen how much i've given away on the last 11 holes mm -hmm. my god i must have shot i'm probably thinking i finished 11 i finished 11 over in the last 11 holes and literally hit it all over the yard mm -hmm. And then I get in, and I'm actually tied for the lead after the first day because it was so hard for everybody. But when you're going through it, you're the only person going through it. Yeah. Like, I sucked. I gave it all away. I can't <laughs> control my golf ball. <laughs> Little did I know that everybody else in the in the groups struggled too. But Irish golf is interesting because it's so penalizing off the tee. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit more less penalizing around the green. Mm -hmm. You know, where in Scotland, it's a little more wide open off the tee and way more penalizing. Around the green, green. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the that's the beauty of it. That's interesting. I haven't been to Italy. That's on my bucket list. Like there's there's about four places that I want to go because I love wine. Italy and all of Italy is high on my list. Mm -hmm. I would. I'm not so sure how much I how much of France I want to see, but every great wine, greatest version of it belongs in France. Mm -hmm. So I want to go to Burgundy. I want to go to Bordeaux, yeah. north the left and the right bank, and I'd love to go to. The Rhone, Southern Rhone and Northern Rhone. Yeah. I want to play the golf in the sand belt of Australia. Yeah. Really bad. Like Kingston Heath, Royal Melbourne, mm -hmm. that group. And I want to go to New Zealand. I love Pinot. I love New Zealand Pinot. Yeah. But there are two, three golf courses in New Zealand I want to play. Cape Kidnappers, Quarry Cliffs, and Tara Edie that are. Heppner did Kidnappers, didn't he? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I want to play there so bad. The the, mm -hmm. the views are so majestic, but like that's a. I just want to make sure that I'm healthy enough to be able to play golf there yeah. when I can afford to take three weeks to go to the sand belt, fly to Christchurch, do New Zealand, 
and then make my way back home. Yeah. That's not something you can do in seven days. No, oh no, no. You know, so it's like it's a, it's a, it's an event to get there. Yeah, probably an event to recover from getting there and then play golf. <laughs> but you and know, then, having a golfing family like you do that because all your whole family would love that trip. Yeah. That, that'll make it easier for you. You're not going to have to lobby very hard. No, I won't have to lobby very hard for that one. <laughs> and I, I've purposely not played St. Andrews mm-hmm. until we can all go. And I think I'm, I'm pretty close to that everybody would be able to enjoy it like they would see it on TV. Yeah. So that's the most important thing. If we're going to go to the home of golf and go do something cool like that, I want to make sure that that Cameron, that, that's 12, mm-hmm. can feel like he could play that golf course and feel like he's playing the golf course. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of having to play par fours that he has to play as par fives and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I don't want him to, yeah. to have the I want him to have the experience of like he's fourteen or fifteen years old. He's hitting it think two seventy. Mm-hmm. So that he feels like even if he's not hitting it as far as Rory, he feels like he's playing the golf course in a way that the guys on T V are playing it. Yeah. So that, that's something that's big that's, that's that. smart. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. big on my list. My boys didn't have any interest at at any age until they were out of college. Is that right? Then they then they realized how much fun the game was and and started playing it yeah. in, in earnest, you know. No doubt. Well, final question. You get to uh you get to play golf with any three others in the world ever. What golf course you playing and who are your three partners? Well, you probably Probably the same as you, St. Andrews, with uh, with your family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I get it, buddy. You've had you've had to endure the worst possible uh, tragedy, and uh, we, uh, our family, certainly, we, we don't we can't fathom it, right? So we just. We empathize with the the pain of losing a child that we can't imagine. Uh, a national hero, not just your son, but a hero for our country. And to have been there and to see all the military people show up and all the people from our community be there on a day in which I can't even fathom. It would be if there was anything that I could ever do to... Mm-hmm be king for a day would be to allow me to have you play St. Andrews with your family. It's a, uh, it's, it's gotta be one of the, the most in, in, in incredibly painful and sorrowful moments to have to endure. So I can't, I don't even know what to say because I can't imagine it, but I do empathize with the loss and the courage that you and Susie have shown for all of us because life has a really bad sense of humor from time to time. Yeah. So for you to be able to come here and share the, the moment, we're all going to be grateful for it. You shared so much of your story. There's that's so powerful, but a lot of people can't, can't imagine that pain. And, we we just we love you through it, man. We don't know what to, we don't know what to offer you other than love, but that's yeah. all you're probably looking for. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's hard. There's no question. But um, um, you know, he died doing what he loved to do, 
and uh, I was I I was in the same boat, you know. If if it weren't for ejection seats, I'd have been in the same boat yeah. in 1980. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, he had gotten to the point where he really loved golf. He didn't get to play very much, but he, mm-hmm. when he played, he you could tell he was he had he had absorbed what we know yeah about golf and uh so yeah he'd be a great playing partner absolutely i'd have to get it to be like 56 degrees with like it'd have to be spitting rain (laughs) (laughs) the wind blowing about 30 because we'd have to use that aeronautical uh information that you you and your family would have to navigate navigate the winds of St. Andrews and the Firth of Fife. Well, with my my infirmaries right now, my club head speed is 68 miles an hour, so I don't hit anything very high anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so well, you have, you uh, every shot is a wind cheater. <laughs> so you you know, obviously coming off of of cancer right now, and you're on the you're on the recovery side of it, which has been obviously an insult to injury for mm-hmm. you in the last year. Talk to us uh, uh, one final piece about staring an, the unlovable thing called cancer right in the face. What's, been, what's it been like? And how? And now that you're on the other side and, and feeling a lot better, what have you learned from it that you want to take into the rest of your life? Well, it's, uh, I'll say, Virgie, uh, when I got the diagnosis, I kind of suspected it because of being a doctor. Uh, the symptoms I was having were were you know classic for for something bad going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll say the uh, for me anyway, uh, the diagnosis generally is, is a terminal diagnosis, and I wasn't as um, mortified as I would have imagined. Um, it was. Um, it was more like, okay, we've got to revamp our future here. We've got to rethink how we're going to do the next year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting into that mode, I think, helped me get through the psychological side of it rather than, oh, woe is me, you know, yeah. uh, why me? It was more like i got to eat some things we got to do to make sure that everything's okay when I go. Yeah. And, um um so it was not as uh um bone crushingly depressing as I would have thought. Yeah. And uh my biggest uh regret should I go is for Susan Colin, like you know, my family. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm excited to see where you are. Um I'm so glad that you got a chance to come here. You're looking you're looking better, feeling better, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. And uh well, I can't wait to get back out there and tee it up with you and hit it up over the trees on four and stifle, <laughs> stifle you one more time. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Travis, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with me on The Verge, and I look forward to seeing you again, buddy. Oh, thank you, Verge. My pleasure, man. It was, it was fun. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, 
www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.